have to say, I'm Mary, I'm alcoholic. I don't like this podium. Don't have a resentment towards it. It just kind of breaks the flow, you know. Kind of like to sit in front of it, but I'll stay with the rules. So, my name is Mary. I'm alcoholic. My sobriety date is Mother's Day of 2001. Uh, by the grace of my higher power, which I call Goddess God, I uh, will be 68 years old, New Year's Day, this coming January. Um, I like to start my story out that way because, like many of you in here, my story's just like yours. Pretty much, I didn't think that I would make it probably to 50. And that's the day that I walked through the store when I was 50. So um, I'll start out with um, a lot of you in here are a lot younger. Jim will know. You know, I was born in the 50s, 1951. And um, my father is, was, until the seven years before he passed away, was an alcoholic. His family was the side of the family that was pretty alcoholic, ran through and through. My mom was the enabler. And so I was born New Year's Eve, 1951, and my parents were at a party. I always like to start my story out this way because it's kind of, for me, this is my story. Um, it was kind of like, well, here you are, because <laughs> they were at a party and my mom went into labor right after midnight, and my dad was so drunk he couldn't get her to the hospital. So the women at the party took my mom to the hospital, and the drunk dudes took my dad. <laughs> and when he got there, the doctor was in the delivery room with my mom, and he came out and he said, Mr. Brewer, there's another one, my name's Brewer, would you like to come in and into the delivery room? And he stood up and puked all over the floor. <laughs> so that didn't happen. Um, the 50s were, you know, um, Bob Seger's song, Little Houses on the Hilltop, Little Houses, made of ticky-tacky little houses on the hilltop, and they all looked just the same. Because most of the people were coming, you know, into an era after World War II. And so um, I grew up in my younger years in a little cul-de-sac and a duplex next to a couple that my parents went to high school and college with. So I had my running buddies with their kids. And um, it was all, uh, as I said, my mother was the enabler. So I was, everything was pretty in pink and Back then, girls wore dresses with petticoats and black patent shoes, and, you know, Dad went to work for the phone company, and Mom stayed home and took care of the kids. But as a little bitty tot, I remember a lot of fighting in the house, a lot of fighting. And my father left my mom after her second child, I'm the oldest of five, to go to Mexico. He was, like, in his early 20s to go to Mexico with one of his buddies on a bender, and uh, he was going to be a bullfighter and learned flamenco guitar. And when they ran out of money, he came home. And um, that's when I, I started feeling <coughs> angst. You know, that something wasn't right in the world. And so I became a people pleaser. 
I wanted everybody to be okay. I was the oldest, as I said, so that's how it ran through my veins for the rest of my life until I walked in here. Um, as I said, his family, my, I went to my grandparents on his side of the family and we'd walk in and the first thing I'd hear out of my grandfather's mouth to the adults, y'all want a short snort? That's what they call it, a little shot of whiskey, you know, and that would start the day at my grandparents' house. And um, But my mom and my aunts that didn't drink, you know, they kept everything, you know, picnic and pretty, and then we had all this dysfunction going on around us. And um, we moved a lot. My dad being with a phone company, we moved a lot. It was kind of like the Army back then. In fact, they had all their cars, company cars were Army green, everything was. So we moved to Lubbock, and um, my dad started drinking pretty heavily then. And my mom had her five children by the time she was in her late 20s. So she was at home taking care of kids, and I remember my dad working and coming home playing golf on the weekend. So whenever he came home, he was, you know, he was drinking. He had a he had a refrigerator that had a beer thing on the front of it with a keg inside. And um, that was my first taste of beer because when I was in the fifth grade, I went in there and put my little mouth under it and just <laughs> chugged until I was sick. Um, and it made me feel good the angst went away, same except when I got sick, but right after drinking it, it was just like, ah, this is nice. So after living in Lubbock and then Fort Stockton, Texas, and then Snyder, and then Big Springs, and then we moved to Fort Worth, and I was starting my freshman year in high school, and again, I was trying to be a people pleaser, so um, grades were high, first chair French horn player in the symphony, and that went on up until my sophomore year in high school. And that's when the drinking really began because I was running with people um, at that time that were, a lot of the guys were getting ready to be drafted to go to Vietnam. And um, I was still in that pretty pink petticoats, dresses, black patent shoes, first chair French horn player, but then, you know, I was starting to experiment going out to Lake Benbrook to beer bashes at night and um, I went out one night with a a date and we drank my first whiskey whiskey. I drank a lot of whiskey and I got home and uh, he took me to the front door and my mom opened the door and I threw up through the screen door all over her. Oh. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And I could see the look on her face. It was the look on her face when my dad would come home drunk. And um, I told her I had a bad hamburger. She sent me up to bed, and I got up the next morning, and nothing was said. You know, she was the enabler. She just acted like nothing had happened. Didn't talk to me about it. You know, just like nothing had happened. So um, about two weeks later, a dear friend of mine asked me to go to a concert. Sure, and so I put on my white piquet dress and my black patent shoes and my little black purse, and he picked me up. And I thought it was kind of weird because he had on jeans and a t-shirt, and uh, he took me to my first rock concert, 
It was Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> I felt totally out of place in my apparel. But by the end of the concert, it was just a 360. I, I don't know if it was the music or what it was, but after that, along with a lot of our friends going to Vietnam, a lot of them coming home, my upperclassmen, some of them not coming home, and a lot of them that did come home came home uh, spiritually or physically or both uh, maimed, and I became a rebel then. And that's when I started not only drinking a lot, but uh, doing you know, pot, quaaludes, acid, mushrooms, more drinking. My senior year, I don't know, a lot of you, Jim probably does, Ross Perot's sister was my dean of girls at my high school. And she called me in my senior year and she said, you're not going to graduate if you don't pull this together in the next three months. Boy, I snapped out of it real quick, got my grades together, graduated. Didn't graduate with honors like I wanted to, but didn't. Oh, and I quit playing in the band and the symphony, too. And so um, I got home after graduation, and my parents told me we were moving to New Jersey because my dad was going to work at Bell Laboratories. Now when I look back at all the moving and, you know, I've come into AA and I've learned about geographical moving, I see why my father was transferred so much, <laughs> you know, because back then in those days, you know, it's gotten a lot better even though it's still the same in some respect. Uh, drinking was acceptable and men particularly in the corporate world could drink and um, I think he had affairs with women in the office and things like that. And it was just like, oh, well, we'll just move you somewhere else. So that's what was going on. And um, my dad was moved up to Bell Laboratories. And this was 1969. I just graduated from high school. And I'm being picked up out of Fort Worth, Texas, flown into New York City. I'll never forget when I flew into New York City. I, it was nighttime, and all I could see was lights. And I thought, where are the trees? Where's the country? And then we flew into Newark, and we're driving through Newark, and I was like, oh my God, we're not gonna live here. And he's like, no, we're living out on the coast, I'm just gonna work here. So we got out there, and I started drinking out of his bar, because uh, it started snowing, and you couldn't go anywhere. And um, then I started getting really sick in the morning, and, um, back up here. Before I left, um, I got engaged to my high school sweetheart. And uh, the plan was, was for me to come back the next summer and we were going to get married. And I realized that I was pregnant. It wasn't uh, the drinking. So I quit drinking and um, called him and uh, he came up and got me and brought me back to Texas. And so I didn't drink for a good year because I was pregnant. And um, as soon as uh, I had my first daughter in 1970, um, I remember he came up to the hospital and uh, to see me after I'd had her. He looked kind of strange. And, uh, he said, I can't, I can't stay in here. I'm tripping on acid, and this is too freaky. And he left the room, and I thought, you know, 
I remember holding her in my arms and saying, it's you and me, honey, because I knew this wasn't going to last. And, um, and it didn't. After I got home with her, um, I started doing the escape again, you know, drinking drugs to kill the fear and the pain of what's going to happen, and then I pulled myself together and went to nursing school and got into a program there in Fort Worth at All Saints Episcopal Hospital where they paid for everything if you passed a certain test, which I did, and I was also the vice president of my class. And I worked really hard through that about six months, and then I fell in with a bunch of nurses and doctors that I don't know if y'all know this, but statistically, 75% uh, of the population in the world, not in the United States, of alcoholic and drug users are in the medical field. And I fell right into that. And um, right at the end of my clinic, uh, my then-husband decided to leave and go to California to find himself and left me with a one-and-a-half-year-old baby. So um, I went to work for one of the doctors there in Fort Worth, and uh, while I was working in the hospital, I was getting a divorce. I uh, met this man, I was like, oh, I'll find a new husband. So I met this man um, <laughs> that was a musician, beautiful, long hair, he was gorgeous, kind of looked like Brad Pitt, and he played in a band that was touring with ZZ Top. And so I uh, hooked up with him, had a four-year run, um, worked during the day as a nurse, and at night, I was a pretty much just a musician groupie, even though I was married to him, you know, and it was more of being a groupie than a marriage. Um, and so, as you well can imagine, it was a lot of drug, sex, rock and roll, and uh, it's the first part of the 70s, and um, I look back on my years of drinking through this story and realized that my higher power was with me the whole time since that day when I was five years old sitting in the Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas before the congregation came in. I remember feeling a presence with me as I looked up at stained glass and um, I knew I was going to be okay. But it was the choices that I made. But at the same time, there were so many things that happened that could have been so much worse. And one thing that I, at this point, I realized today is that my child that I had at the age of three at that time, um, my higher power helped take care of her because I wasn't a good mom. Because if I wasn't at work, she was staying with his parents so that I could go out and party and drink and, and have my time, as I called it, and so by the grace of God, she was taken care of, um, because there was a lot of drinking and a lot of cocaine, and I, I'm, at that time, I weighed 95 pounds, that's the other thing, I did a lot of drugs and a lot of drinking, and here I am at the age of 67, and I'm still here, I know I've done a toll on my body, I know that, 
but you know my sponsor is real big on everybody in this room is a miracle and I firmly believe that um, the that marriage ended with a lot of physical and mental abuse and I walked away from it and um, married another musician that I knew and he was he was a good man um, but there was still a lot of drinking and drugs and I found myself pregnant again um, seven years between my children with this man and quit drinking that year and it, my my daughters tell me mom it wasn't all bad there was a lot of good times and I'm just like, really? <laughs> okay. So when I had my second child, uh, that's, that's when things started going downhill. After I had her, you know, we started right back into drinking. And I went back to work nursing. And, um, and my husband was on the road a lot. And when he came home, he would, you know, drink a lot. He wrecked, like, seven cars. Um, ran through money so that we couldn't pay the rent. We were almost on the street a couple of times, but my parents stepped in and took us in. Um, but I woke up one morning, about three in the morning, because I felt a presence in the room. He had a gig that night, and he was standing over me, and he was un literally, y'all, he was covered in blood. And I, I was just like, oh my God. And he's like, I wrecked the car. And I'm like, where is it? I don't know, I walked home. And so I got him to the hospital and he had a broken sternum, three broken ribs, a crushed skull, um, broke both his arms. And uh, they said that when he, he was, we had a Volkswagen, that when he hit whatever he hit, a ravine or whatever, his whole body just slammed into the Volkswagen steering wheel, which was really hard metal. And, so my parents said, you know, we'll bail you out. I was working for um, uh, Cigna as the HMO back then for the pediatric ward. And they said, well, you know, I called them. I'm like, oh, my God. And they said, well, we will get you a new car. We will help you, but you have to end this marriage. And so, so I did. And um, I went back to work for the hospital and uh, looked for another husband. And I found one. Okay, so that's one, two, three, four. That's not all. <laughs> I met this Harley dude. Okay, so the other part of the things that we all find ourselves in is like geographic, taking on other personalities. Well, maybe this will fit. Well, maybe this will fit. Well, maybe this will fix me. So I ran uh, with a Harley club and um, so naive and stupid you know I had these you know delusional realities going on but the reality was I was married to a Harley biker who was in a club and we lived out in the country outside of Ferris Texas I drove for an hour and a half across Dallas to Richardson to work for a doctor that I worked for. And we lived in a trailer for the first year. I would get home at six o'clock after picking up the kids, start drinking, get the pickup truck with the rubber plastic tank in the back, drive it into Ferris, 
climb a tower, put the hose in, because we didn't have water. And that, I did this every day to haul water back, to hook up to the trailer to pump in so we would have water. Um, rode my motorcycle, which he gave me when we got married, um, which was way too big for me. And you know, I'm, I look back now, I'm like, I don't know how I didn't wreck and kill myself. Um, stood up in the sidecar on the side of his motorcycle many times because he taught me how to shoot a gun to go quail hunting because we had 15 acres. Um, called me out one day, it was freezing cold, and I, I had bought this beautiful white wool coat with leather trim that wrapped around, loved it so much. He called me out one morning, he said, I need your help. And I put on my coat and I ran out there and he said, here, hold this, and it was a squirrel that he had shot and he was skinning it and the blood went all over me and I was like, this is my life? Come on, let's go frog gigging. Get in the boat, gig frogs. And this is not me, but I did it. I was so delusional. I bought a pony for my youngest daughter. Um, I let her ride it bareback all over the property. Um, she had a motorcycle that she rode all over the property. She was five, and I let her do this stuff. By the grace of God, she wasn't killed. I woke up one morning, and my bedroom was full of tables and bullets one day. And I was like, what is this? Oh, we're going to start making bullets. I'm like, we? He goes, yeah, the guys are coming to make bullets. And so... All of a sudden, there was a lot of arms going through there, and then there was meth going through there, and then I started getting scared, and I was like, okay, i got to get out of this marriage, and um, that, that, was, that was a scary one, because um, that's when I realized, oh, the other one. I was really drunk one night, and he had this special closet that he had all his guns in. And I, I went and opened it because I was, I was looking for more pot. That's what it was. And there was a Ku Klux Klan robe hanging in the closet. I remember the fear and thinking, what have I gotten myself into? The meth and the drugs and the guns and the, oh my God. And so by that time, my oldest daughter had moved out. She got smart and she, she left. She was still in high school at the School of Performing Arts in Dallas and uh, she moved in with a girlfriend and her mom. And I still had my youngest one with me. And I uh, packed her up and sent her to California to live with her dad. And I got out of there. Well, I'm child-free. I quit my job. I um, shacked up with some guy and really started drinking. Lost my job at the hospital that I was working at and um, started bartending. So I could be, you know, I could drink. I could bartend and drink. Uh, I was still young and pretty enough to, to get a job at a bar. And so 
I did that for about four years until uh, my parents came and got me because my oldest daughter called them. And at that point, I weighed about 89 pounds, and I was drinking a bottle of Maker's Mark, a big bottle of Maker's Mark, a day. Again, you know, alcohol poisoning, I should, I should have been dead. Um, they took me out to their lake house and dried me out. Um, I stayed sober for about eight months at that time. And um, then I decided I needed to get a job. And I, I got a job waiting tables and bartending out at the lake where they lived and slowly started drinking again. And then it was, oh God, it was just constant all day and all night until my parents told me that, you know, you're going you're gonna to have to leave. We can't have you here like this. So I met a guy at a bar, and he said, come with me. So I went to Wichita Falls. <gasps> <laughs> Take your breath away. Oh, my God. This guy was one of those guys that was like, keeps you and you can't talk to anybody, and you can't go anywhere. And then the, before the physical abuse started, which I could tell was fixing to, I jumped in my truck and got out of there one night, and um, he followed me. And um, his mother had already called the police, and, and they pulled him over. So. I got to um, Dallas and called a friend of mine, and uh, she called my daughter, my oldest daughter, who was living here in Austin at the time. And uh, let me back up here. Dur during that time, right before my parents found me, um, I really started drinking heavily because the fifth child, my sister, um, had brain cancer. and. I stopped drinking for a short period of time there because it was put upon me as the oldest child to help my parents with her. So there was a period of time there where I stopped drinking enough where I could handle that. And when she passed away, I was sitting in the hospital room with her uh, drinking. I wasn't present. I wasn't there for her. I wasn't there for my mom. And um, so when she passed away, I really, that, that's when I really started spiraling. So back to uh, my friend brought me to Austin to my daughter, and um, I started controlling my drinking because I didn't want to embarrass her, even though I did many times. Um, she's a performing artist. I showed up at a lot of her shows at the Black Cat and the Steamboat embarrassing her. One time she had to have me carried out. Um, that, that was really horrible. Um, she took care of me while I worked as the manager and head bartender at Speeds, which is a pool hall, was a pool hall, over on the east side. I did that for four years drinking day and night, and doing a lot of cocaine. Um, and, and that's how far I, you know, 
the SWAT team was behind our club one night, and I was oblivious to the fact that the tuxedo store next door had been running cocaine through there. The whole four years, I'd been running the pool hall, which you know what was going on in the pool hall if that was going on next door, and I had no idea. And they came in and uh, told all of us that we'd be questioned and that they had been videotaping the parking lot for two years. Well, after we got off and closed the club, we were out there playing football and doing lines of coke and drinking, and I was like, oh, my God. So uh, <laughs> I um, decided that I needed to leave there, and um, that's another time that I look back. You know, I would leave the club at 3 in the morning drunk and drive my car on I-35 from Riverside to my house in central Austin going 100, 135 miles an hour, just falling. And I, by the grace of God, yet, didn't kill anyone or myself. I mean, it's a miracle. And all the other dangerous situations I put myself in going home with different people, you know, from the club. But um, I met a man who said he didn't drink or drug, and I came to Bolden for a short period of time, and then we moved off to Brian College Station, and life was good. He was a theater director in his high school, and I worked at a framing shop, and um, I loved it, being around art. And but the people that owned the shop, it wasn't their fault, but the people that owned the shop were Aggies, and Aggies drink. <laughs> we had a refrigerator full of booze, and they had lunch brought in every day, and we'd drink, and we'd drink after work, and we'd go to the football drink, games and drink, and we'd go to the bonfires and drink, and so it just started all over again. And... Um, so my husband and I started, you know, growing farther and farther apart. And um, there was something I woke up one morning and I said, you know what? You're close to 50 and look at your life. Are you going to do something about it? So I sat for 24 hours in front of a candle that I had bought for change and meditated and prayed, just staring at that flame. And I got up the next morning and I packed my bags and I came back to Austin. And I stayed with my oldest daughter for a few days. And, um, and my husband came back to Austin and we moved right up the hill here, South Lamar, Treadgill, I think is the name of the street. And um, I went to a party a few days later after we'd moved up there, and it was a birthday party for one of my daughter's girlfriends. And everybody was drinking, and I was drinking, of course. I probably had five bottles of wine that day. And I remember I was sitting out on a patio with my cigarette and my glass of wine. And I was looking through the window at everybody in there dancing and talking and interacting. And I thought, you know, 
I want to be a part of. I don't feel a part of. I've never felt a part of. Why didn't? I, why don't I ever feel a part of? I had this like out of body vision of myself all of a sudden of this 50 year old woman who was just a shell just a shell so I went home I, I went in the house and I said it's time for me to go home and my daughter looked at me in my eyes and I could tell it was like they always looked at me like who are you right now you know where are you right now and she took me home and I got up the next day and it was Mother's Day and I said, I'm not going to drink today. So we had brunch, and of course everybody's having mimosas, and I didn't drink. I had the DTs bad. And I got up the next day and called in our group, and um, I said, you know, I need a meeting. And they said, well, where do you live? And I told them, and they said, Bolden. Okay, mind you, I'd been here before. And I was like, oh, yeah, Bolden. So I got myself together and I came down here on a Tuesday night. It was supposed to be a women's meeting after the 5.30 meeting. And um, then I came in and Susan T was sitting here fixing to get up. And there was another woman, Lucy, here. And I, she said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm here for the women's meeting. She goes, oh, they don't have that anymore. We just finished the 5.30 meeting. And, she must have seen the desperation on my face because she said, oh, sit down. Lucy, sit down. We'll have a meeting. And she had a meeting with just the three of us. I'll, I'll never forget her. Um, and she said, keep coming back. And so I came back the next day. Back then they had three meetings. They had one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evening, and then one at 8 o'clock. They had four meetings a day. So... I started coming every day, three day, three times a day. I would come down to a meeting and go back, and I would sit back there where that gentleman with the black hat is, and I would just bawl. I would just cry. <laughs> I would just bawl and cry, and all me, poor me, all about me, and everybody would just love me and accept me and keep on coming back, you know. But what do I do? Keep on coming back. And, you know, I heard the suggestion, the promises and the suggestion that, you know, 90 and 90. So, I, you know, I just kept coming back. And I found a sponsor, God lover. You know, she'd say, go home and eat, rest, go to a meeting. Eat, rest, take a hot bath, go to a meeting. Eat, rest, take a walk, take a bath, eat, come to a meeting. And that's what I did. When I look back at that first year, y'all, it was the first year in my whole life that I didn't work. I had everything that I needed. I got to devote my whole first year to my sobriety. I couldn't afford rehab. This was my rehab. I drowned myself in this place and the people in it. I let them surround me and show me. I was 50 years old when I walked through that door. They, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know. I, I just knew I wanted something different, and I hoped I could. The drink was lifted right away. It was the emotional and the spiritual that was so broken. And it was the people in here that pulled it together for me until I could be strong enough and clear enough to do it for myself. And so I went through the steps. I did what was suggested. I started looking for a vision quest. And this is when I realized that, you know, sometimes when we go out there, you know, my sponsor kept telling me, let it happen, let it happen. 
Do the next right thing like you've been doing, the next right thing in front of you. Stay in the present, stay in the moment. Put your desires out there and then just let them happen. But I was all about, where am I going to find a vision quest? Who am I going to find a vision quest? So I went to the Body, Mind, Spirit Expo, and I was just walking around, and this little Hispanic woman was doing crystal work on another woman. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I asked her to do some crystal work on me. And she said, in the next 24 hours, you're going to be gifted something. And you are a people pleaser. And you're really, really, it's really hard for you to be a being. My first sponsor told me that. You, you are going to learn how to be. And it's real hard for you to accept a gift from someone. And so in the next 24 hours, I was gifted a trip to Maui, everything paid for, to go work on organic plantation through willing workers on organic farms. <coughs> if you ever want to do that, guys, look it up. It's really cool. And while I was being gifted this verbally, I kept saying, oh, I can't. Oh, I can't do that. I can't. I was like nine, ten months sober. And then I remembered what this woman had said to me, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to open up to this. And then the next day I got a phone call that my father had passed away. So uh, he had been sober for about seven years before he passed away. He passed away from kidney failure and uh, liver damage. He um, was in his mid-70s when he passed away. He was sober seven years before he passed away, but he'd already done damage to his body. Um, but everyone in his AA group at the lake showed up. It was beautiful. And I was sober, and I gave um, the eulogy for him. And I'm so grateful that I was sober at that time and was able to do that for him and my family. And then I took off to Maui. And I came back, and I was telling everybody in here about my awesome, magical vision quest, and Etsy came up and he goes, have you ever been on a trip like that sober before? And I was like, don't take the magic away from it. He goes, I'm not. I'm just showing you, and it hit me, that everything that my perception and my reality and my delusions all through my drinking was blocking me from the magic that was around me, the opportunities that were laid there before me. And this is what I had. This is what the gift I was given in sobriety if I kept it up. So that's been my journey through sobriety these last 17 years is um, I'm not always perfect, none of us are, but I find that if I stay in the moment and I stay in the present, <coughs> I belong to a sweat watch group and um, we go in and we pray and we chant and we put our prayers out there and we've been taught to pray for our highest good and we've been taught to pray for others' highest goods. And um, I put my desires out there and I work the program because the disciplines that it has taught me, not only not to pick up that first drink, but the other disciplines so I don't get that stinking thinking, because that's what you get before you pick up the first drink, is prayer and meditation every morning when I wake up. Prayer during the day when I start to feel angst, I'm in fear, I'm not in faith. 
I get myself back in faith, then I'm back on the beam. I've been back in nursing now for 17 years. I've been working with a neurologist, a female neurologist that I love. I'm her personal nurse for the last 11 years. And all of this is because I got sober at the age of 50 without thinking that I could have something different because of my age, because of what I'd done, because of all the, all the damage, all the damage. I have two beautiful daughters. I have two beautiful grandchildren. I'm fixing to be a great-grandmother in September. Um, I sat for three years on weekends and at night with my granddaughter when she went through a life-threatening disease at Dell's Children's and then Texas Children's Hospital. And I wasn't sitting there drunk. I was able to be present and help take care of her. Um, I get to sponsor. I get to have a sponsor. I get to do whatever I want. But I know from my sisters and brothers in this program that it's just today because my sisters and brothers that have gone out and those that have made it back and those that haven't have taught me that it's just today. And if I don't work this program, I most definitely will drink again. And I'll end up like my Aunt Faye, naked out on the porch, beating the police away with a broomstick, or I'll die, or I'll be in an institution, or I'll be out there on the streets walking a wet drunk. And I would prefer to keep the life that this AA fellowship when I stood at the International AA Conference and held hands with brothers and sisters and, and did the serenity prayer, it was the most beautiful sound and feeling to have anywhere you go and walk into an AA group. Not only to be welcome, but you feel like you're home. And that's what I felt like when I walked through that door at the age of 50, that I was home. And Bolden has been my home group all along, and I've visited other groups too. And I have to say that I'm glad that I took the leap of faith and walked through that door. And as I tell my young sponsees, um, we were powerless. We get power from our higher power, but we are powerful and empowered because of this program. And it takes courage to do what we're doing. I feel like we are courageous to do this. It only not only lifts us up, but it lifts our community up when we walk out that door. And so I'm honored, and thank you for the opportunity to tell my story. It's been a long time, and it serves me as well as it serves you to remember where I came from and where I am today. Thank you. Thank you.